This is David Green with the Cultural Alliance of Fairfield County, welcoming you to the October 2021 edition of Spotlight on Arts and Culture, our monthly interview show, the second Monday of each month on WPKN 89.5 FM, bringing you news and information about the arts and culture across coastal Fairfield County. Today, the second Monday of October, is Indigenous Peoples Day, a transformation of what we have known as Columbus Day. And we're celebrating the day, exploring how we can use this celebration as a way of beginning a deeper understanding of native indigenous culture in our region, both its traditions and how it is alive and kicking today. Our guests today are Darlene Kazak, a member of the Scaticoke Nation, storyteller and educator at the Institute for American Indian Studies based in Washington, Connecticut. Welcome, Darlene. Thank you. Sharan Wapatukwe Piper, clan mother and tribal leader of the Golden Hill Pogusset Tribal Nation. Welcome, Sharan. Thank you. Chelsea Garth, curator at the Fairfield Museum and History Center. Welcome, Chelsea. Happy to be here, David. And Janet Evelyn, Executive Director of Norwalk NICE, that's the Norwalk International Cultural Exchange Festival, and newly appointed Coastal Fairfield County Folk and Traditional Arts Community Impact Coordinator. Welcome, Janet. Thank you, David. So, um, Darlene, let, let's start with you, as you're one of the educators at the Institute for American Indian Studies. I thought we should start with you and ask for a, just a broad overview, perhaps an indigenous Fairfield County 101 um, of the history and culture of native indigenous life um, across this area of coastal Fairfield County. Uh, so over the millennia, who has lived in this region? Um, how did they live and what happened to them? This region, <clears throat> the state that we live in was once known as Quinnetticut. And that word means place of the long water for the Connecticut River. Uh -huh. It was later changed to Connecticut, the word that we know today. Now, Connecticut has a very rich, deep um, indigenous history going back over 12,000 years ago, when much of this area was still covered with ice and glaciers. Uh-huh all groups of people coming here looking for resources, but not staying very long. A few thousand later, those glaciers melt, more people start coming, more plants start growing, more animals start um, coming here as well. And at that time, they were moving and flowing around this region, eating with the seasons. Uh -huh. so, you know, they had summer locations, winter hunting locations, and so on. Now, they had a different way of interacting with the land and thinking about the land. In our culture, no one species is more important than the other. We're all equal. And when you have that type of relationship with the land and with its beings that live upon it, you um, respect those resources a little bit better and you treat them a little differently. Uh, for example, if you're hunting, you don't shoot the first deer you see you wait until you see that there's a healthy population and that it's safe to take one. 
And when you hunt that animal and, and you, that animal has sacrificed his life for you so that you can live, you are respectful. You thank that animal for giving its life. You utilize every piece of that animal that you can for making tools, for clothing, and so on. Um, also, plant life, you know, those are our relatives too. Once again, you harvest respectfully. You only take what you need and you leave some behind to drop as seeds for future generations or for animals to eat because if they don't eat, we don't eat. So it's living in harmony with the land. Being in tune with the land, um, I think, is the thing that, you know, stands out the most about us. Um, and this is true of all of all tribes. Um, it's right. Us. That that connection with the land, the connection with the earth um, and that respect for the gifts that we're given. Uh, we live today in a very commodity based um, society. They were a gift society. Things were gifts. And when you're given a gift, it's a little different, you know, than when you just purchase something, right? You treat it differently. You respect it differently. In our language, there was no word for owning land. That wasn't a concept that existed. You were just borrowing land from future generations. So it's that seven generation principle that they lived by as well. So they were caretakers of this land, preserving it so that their future generations can enjoy the same things that, you know, we still enjoy today. Right. Mm -hmm. um, so it was a different way of thinking. And I think if more people learned about indigenous people, their way of thinking, how they interacted with the land for 12,000 years, they could perhaps understand better why when European cultures came in, there was such a clash because mm -hmm. those two ways of thinking couldn't have been any different. Right. Yeah. By not talking about the past, by, you know, making it seem like, um, you know, no one was here before the first settlements, you know, we're missing out on that whole history that could be so helpful in helping us understand. And kids aren't, you know, are smarter than we, we realize they you know, knew it wasn't an empty map when settlers started to come here and they have questions. They want to know why, you know, what gave them the right to take the land away from the native people. You know, they're smarter than, like I say, we give them credit for. And as adults, we need to provide those, them with those answers. And in understanding the differences in the cultures, the way they thought about land, you know, it's a way to explain it to them in a way that makes sense to them. Now, Native people lived here for all that time, having a different relationship with animals. So when European explorers and fishermen started coming here, at first, those relationships, they, the Dutch and the French weren't here to take the land. They were here to trade. And for a while, Native American people were exposed to new items that they never had in their lives before. Metal cooking pots, metal axes, scissors, and knives, and so on. But along with these exchanges of items, unknowingly, they were exchanging diseases. Diseases that never existed here in Quinnetticut because of a different relationship with animals. In Europe, they domesticate animals, bringing them around or even inside their homes. 
and they were exposed to different um, diseases that they built up immunities to fight. And they also had knowledge on how to treat those diseases. Now, when the, Euro the Europeans start coming here and they trade those diseases with the Native people, Native American people, their immune systems couldn't fight it. They didn't have the knowledge of what was going on. And they were being told some very confusing um, things as well, um, such as, you know, it's because you don't believe in God that, you know, your people are dying. So it was, you know, a rough time. And a lot of people can relate to it now, seeing that we're in this COVID situation. You yeah. know, they can understand a little bit better about that exchange of diseases. It is said that 80% of Connecticut's indigenous people died from disease. Wow. Not from wars, but from disease. So when people started to come here and settle, those um, settlements were often decimated. So they, you know, would take them over, you know, and, and state claim to them. Um, in order for those tribes to survive, because now, you know, 80% are gone, they needed to merge into the tribes that we know today. So, for example, Scaticote is an amalgamation of many other tribes. Uh -huh. The same thing with the, the, the Pagasset and, you know, most tribes, you know, they had to, you know, like I say, merge. So the original tribes that covered all of this land now are reduced to the five tribes we know today. Uh-huh. Okay. Interesting. Um, so you're a member of the Scaticoke uh, tribal nation. Can you, can you tell us a little bit more about that nation, how it evolved, and yourself as an inheritor of the life and culture of the Scaticoke? Um, our people, as settlements happened, we were, our lands were being encroached upon. So they moved to the Scaticote Mountain area and they welcomed others to join them as well. Um, it was kind of a refuge away from, you know, what was going on in the rest of the state. Um, so and, and where is that, Darlene? It's in Kent, Connecticut. Right. Now, at one time, it was over 4,000 acres. Today, it's 400 acres. And if you drive down Scaticote Road, you'll see that those 400 acres are on mountainous cliffs. So you could only imagine what a change that was for their lives because they no longer had the flatlands to garden on. They no longer, you know, could live their lives the way they were living before when they were, you know, reduced to living on that land that's left, you know, for them today. So it's not possible for, you know, a lot of Native people to own homes and live there because of the, you know, land that they left us. Right. But it doesn't mean we lost our connection to that place. Um, it's where we hold our ceremonies. It's where we have our cemeteries. It's where we gather our medicines, do our teachings. Um, so it still has a strong significance to us. And... Um Tell us a little bit about, um, so you're an educator at the Institute um, and a storyteller. Can you tell us first a little bit about the Institute? Why was it established? Who does it serve? And then maybe talk about your own roles there. The Institute was founded about 45 years ago. Um, our founder was an archaeologist who had did a dig here in Washington, Connecticut, and discovered um, artifacts that dated back over 10,000 years ago. 
Wow. First time that they knew that there were Native people here in this area that long ago. Hmm. Think about it, 10,000 years ago. There's mastodons walking around, big hairy elephants, <laughs> beavers the size of bears. It just blows my mind that there were people here as well. Uh-huh. A picture of myself with my head inside <laughs> mastodon jaw. Just, you know, it, it just blows my mind. Um, so that was a major discovery. And he wanted to, you know, highlight that. So he started a very small museum where those artifacts were on display. And over, over time, the museum grew and grew and grew into what it is today. And like I said um, earlier, we use two perspectives. We use Western science, archaeology, and so on. But we also use traditional knowledge. We've always had Native people um, help us tell the story of those items. Because an archaeologist can only tell you so much. You know, where that item was found, how old it is, what kind of stone it's made out of, and so on. But they don't know the cultural significance of that item, whether it was used for ceremony or whether it was a spear, for example. Um, So that indigenous voice has always been present in our museum. Um, And that's something I'm I'm very proud of. You know, it makes us a little different than a lot of other museums. And we can also talk about, because we're not tribally owned, we can talk about all of the tribes equally, as well as tribes in other areas. And we could talk about those differences between the Plains tribes, Northwest Coast tribes, um, you know, and and here in the Eastern Woodlands. So we could tell a, a, a larger story, I think. And yourself, um, as a yourself as a storyteller, do you tell more than the stories of the Scatticoke? Do you tell yes. stories of other, other cultures? To be a traditional storyteller is a little bit different than your everyday, you know, run-of-the-mill storyteller. A traditional storyteller has been given permission by these storytellers in this area to learn and share those stories. Now, I don't learn my stories by reading them from a book. I learn my stories by sitting with an elder, listening oh. to that, el- that story. Hmm. And then that story is given to me as a gift. And it's my responsibility to memorize that story and retell it to keep that story alive. Our stories have been alive for hundreds, if not thousands of years. And these stories, you know, the ones that I like to tell the most are the cute little talking animal stories to children, right? (laughs) There's other significant stories that talk about the landscape. Um, I like to use the example of the Three Sisters Garden. You know, everybody teaches about how corn made its way up to Connecticut a thousand years ago, and Native people started planting the Three Sisters Garden, which is corn, beans, and squash on small hills spaced far apart. And that method of of gardening is very successful. We know today that corn takes nitrogen out of the soil. Green beans puts nitrogen back in. Pumpkins, gourds, or squash on the bottom, the big leaves keeps the weeds down, keeps the moisture in the soil. The prickly vines keep some of those critters away. So it works. That soil is in balance. Those three plants are helping each other grow. And those three plants also provide them with all the food that they need. So that was a major accomplishment for them because now they have a reliable food source. 
they could look out and see how much food they're going to have for the upcoming year. Um, but along with the seeds, the actual seeds that were traded, the stories about those plants were traded as well. And that's how people knew the way to plant them, when to plant them, who was planted first, who came along next, which one was planted last. Um, so that's the things that I find it fascinating in stories. Um, you know, they could be used, you know, as a way to teach exactly what our stories were. So I'm in interested. Um, so you are very much a kind of, what's the word, a kind of a pan um, expert. I mean, you, you re are representing many, many tribes, their histories, their cultures, but you're also a member of one particular um, tribal nation. Um, so what's your role within that? Do you, do you have a particular role? Do you, are you active in keeping the Scatico culture alive yourself? Yes, I am. Um, I belong to the Scatico Women's Traditional Council. We've had women's councils in place in our communities since time immortal. And the role of that council is to preserve these stories, share these stories, teach these stories to the next generation so that they're never lost and never forgotten. Um, because of the pandemic, we haven't gotten together as much, but we were on a roll there to get some, you know, pretty amazing things done. And I hope soon we'll be able to get back on track to what our goals were. Uh -huh. Well, that's terrific. So thank you so much. Um, if you're just joining us, this is David Green with the Cultural Alliance of Fairfield County and our October 2021 edition of Spotlight on Arts and Culture, a monthly interview show on WPKN 89.5 FM. Today, our subject is Indigenous Peoples Day. Our guests are Darlene Kasak, a member of the Scatikoke Nation, storyteller and educator at the Institute for American Indian Studies, Sharan Wapatukwe Piper, clan mother and tribal leader of the Golden Hill Pogusset Tribal Nation, Chelsea Garth, curator at the Fairfield Museum and History Center, and Janet Evelyn, executive director of Norwalk Nice and the coastal Fairfield County Folk and Traditional Arts Community Impact Coordinator. So Sharan, I'd like to turn to you next. Uh, you are the clan mother of the Golden Hill Pogusset Nation. Um, so my understanding is that, that the larger Pogusset Nation was one of the largest in this immediate era, area of central Fairfield County. Is that correct? Yes. Can my apologies. I, I'm driving, so I don't want to put the camera on and get everybody dizzy. Can you give us an overview of the Pogusset and the evolution of the Golden, the Golden Hill Pogusset Nation? Sure. Um, well, back into our ancestral times, um, and, and Darlene, she summed up a lot of it for a lot of us. Thank you, Darlene. That was very good. Um, our first sachem and his son landed in uh, Milford Beach. So it goes from there. And they used to call our reservations camps, um, and we call them uh, reservations. But they had them, they would label us as camps out through, you know, Fairfield, Milford, you know, that extended all through like Orange, Derby, Seymour, Bridgeport, Trumbull, you know, it went up to a certain part of Greenwich area. 
and a lot of us who had walked a lot of our trails, where we fished, where we lived, where our children were born, where our children was raised. Uh, we took in a lot of, of intertribal other tribes who uh-huh. were being, you know, at war with the, the colonials. We took them in, you know, to help them out. But we had a big, huge piece coming from Greenwich and all the way up to Upper Connecticut. Um, We still have, still dated on the map, 1625, the map that we have, it was dated then where you could see where all the tribes' names were um, and what rivers and waters and, you know, what lakes and what reservations, what lands or areas of the towns and cities that the tribes had of um, living there. We're still, go ahead. And, and so how did the Golden Hill Pugasset um, um, uh, come together um, out of the, that larger Pugasset tribe? Um, our tribe being large and then inter-tribal with other tribes where back in the day where our ancestors are freemans who are freed African-American, American Indian, Golden Hill Pugasset we had a lot of them in a tribe. So a lot of them who were, had genocide, a lot of them who were at war, a lot of them who were on slavery, a lot of them who were being kidnapped or abused, a lot of the intermarriage happened. So for survival or, or what have you, we were with other tribes and our tribe. That's another reason why our tribe expanded and became so big because there was intermarriage. There was a lot of kids being born with intermarriage and intertribal with tribes. Right. Our tribe is still big. Um, you know, we do have a lot of elders uh, who have passed on. We're probably maybe about 150 of tribal members now. Um, a lot of our future generation comes from our youth and our babies. We have a number of babies who are born yearly through the year. So that's how our tribe continues to stay large and big throughout the whole East Coast. Um, tell us about the name Golden Hill. It's a fascinating name. <sighs> Thank you. Um, Golden Hill Pogwase, um, we were given n- different names um, back in our ancestral times. We were called the Turkey Tribe at once. We were called uh, Pigise, Pogasa. So a lot of people hear those names or come across it, whether it's in books or whether it's at a storytelling, whether it's, you know, on a map. And we have to correct everybody that, yeah, we're Golden Hill Pogwase and the sun in our doors always open in the east where the sun always rises. And the Pogwase is where our waters, our waters come falling out. It's the narrow of our waters. And is there a golden, an actual golden hill, or was there an actual golden hill? Um, yes, we have street names. We have areas, like I said, they called it camps. It was reservations where our ancestors and our tribal people lived and owned. Uh, Golden Hill uh, Courthouse in Bridgeport, Golden Hill, that street, it was named after us. That was our marking when our tribe and our ancestors had lived through the different areas of Connecticut. We put our tribal names. So yeah, there, there is, well, you can't say there was, there still is, we still consider that. That is still Golden Hill Pugwasset, tribal owned land um, in Bridgeport called Golden Hill uh, Courthouse, Golden Hill Street. So that's named after us, yeah. And it's actually on a hill. The street is an actual yes. hill. Right, and um, there's quite an, quite an arts community there now too with uh, 
City Lights Gallery and the downtown. Yeah. Cabaret. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. A lot. They have done a lot out there. Yep. So tell us about your, it's an amazing title that you have as uh, Clan Mother. Can you tell us about that title and your role as uh, in with the tribe? Sure. Um, the Clan Mother, you're chosen and looked at at a very young age. You're looked upon. I was chosen in grammar school. Um, my grandmother and my father, uh, they had all the paperwork ready with the Indian Affairs. A couple of people who are retired now out of office said that they do remember that day when I was looked upon in grammar school. I was probably like eight or nine years old. Huh. And that I would be chosen, <clears throat> you know, to be carried out after my father passes away. My father, who was the chief, he carried out after my grandmother, which was his mother. She was the clan mother and chief this. She appointed my father. And when my father passed, he appointed me, even though I was looked upon at a very young age. So at a very young age, at 10 years old, I learned a lot. Ah. I, I was raised at my father's knee. I learned everything from, I even knew how to write a check from a checkbook at 10 years old. <laughs> so you're learning medicines, you're learning um, cooking, you're learning sewing, you're learning all about the animals, you're learning about your genealogy, you're reading all these papers and you're watching VHS, you know, videos of things that your tribe and your ancestors have recorded. You're reading their old uh, history books and their journals that they kept in diaries. So I learned at a very young age and the clan mother is a tribal leader. She is the overseer of the tribe. Clan mother looks is positions higher than the chief. And we do a lot of still of the teachings, getting the youth prepared, future generations, we're the last vote, we're the tiebreaker. Um, basically, nothing gets done or goes past the clan mother. Um, paperwork, signatures, anything that's very important. So it's kind of like saying, you know, you have your Congress and your president, you know, we have our, our tribal leaders, clan mother, we have our chiefs, we have our council, we have a whole structure as well. Um, all the tribes do. It sounds, um, like, it, sounds like a full-time job. It, it is. It gets very, very busy. It is. It is. It's very, very busy, but I love it. I'm happy and honored and I wouldn't trade it, you know, for anything, so. Um, so I just, I've discovered you are also a writer. Um, and yesterday I was uh, actually watching a video of your uh, participation in an event that was organized by the International Festival of Arts and Ideas um, that gathered five indigenous Connecticut writers and, and you were one. And yes. I see you, that uh, your book, Red Road, was recently published and is available in bookstores and on Amazon. Can uh -huh. you tell us about, um, about the book first? Sure. Um, it's an amazing book. Um, people have read it in one day, maybe two. They couldn't put it down. I'm already being asked if there's going to be a part two. Uh -huh. Yeah, so that book was about a little mixture of everything because of there's so much cultural appropriation and a lot of people don't understand. And a lot of people look at you and they kind of basically judge you like they judge a book by its cover. And that's not really how it's supposed to be. So that book is basically talking about an African indigenous, African-American Indian, where my family is American Indian and African-American. So that book talks about 
that piece, it talks about being on the reservation. It talks about being in the tribe, what each tribal leader and each group of who has a position. It talks about medicine, men and women. It talks about our um, spirituality, people who are born with gifts in the tribe, people who have the medicine. Um, it um, talks about basically everything. It kind of sums it up and covers it up, but it's basically to let people understand and know about cultural appropriation that you can't just go and buy sage and someone's telling you, you can only like that stage at certain specific days or times, or you should do it this way. You should do it that way. And that's not how our people did it. So it's kind of also answering a lot of people's questions and correcting people on that it's coming straight from the horse's mouth, the roots of an American Indian with African American uh, blood in our family and lineage and where it came and how we were accepted and how we went through the same thing at slave time. So it sums it up about a lot, how to cleanse yourself, you know, everything. There's everything and anything in there. I can't wait. I, I've already ordered it from, Good, from thank Amazon you. myself. So thank I'll be you. reading it thank um, you. next week. Um, so what, what is, can you tell us what the reference is in the title? What is The Red Road? Um, the Red Road is speaking about, it's basically <clears throat> what American Indians, um, we walk the red road. So it's how we would carry ourselves. If we were humble ourselves, if we had respect and we treated mother earth with respect, thank mother earth and great spirit and sky world, you know, doing our, our spirituality, <clears throat> basically just being respectful, learning what our grandmothers taught us, what the elders taught us, what the other tribal leaders taught us and taking that and living that everyday red road. So when people say like, you've fallen off the red road and red is also the color that the first spirit sees red is actually our color it's you know protection in the first color spirit sees so when some people say that you might have fallen off the road you know red road that means that you're not on that american indian path you've fallen uh -huh. off for whatever reason uh -huh. um, and you would go to your people, you would go to your elders for help, you would go to your medicine man or woman or your spiritualist, depending on who it was that you would go to for help to get you back on that road. It, it's a good road, so. Okay. I will discover more when I- Yeah, when I yeah, I don't wanna give Great. too much away. There's a lot of good stuff in that book, a lot of good stuff. So I, I have to ask you, um, are there other artists actively at work within the tribe, keeping the culture and traditions alive? Oh, yes. Oh, yes. All year round. Um, our tribe is always out and about um, teaching our future generation. And we get together and we do everything between ceremonies. We have people who are teaching the drumming and the singing, um, drawing. Uh, making crafts, sewing regalia. There's everybody's has a different type of gift in our tribe and we get the future generation ready. And then we're also connected in a tribal with other tribes and everybody has a different piece to bring to the table, whether you're painter, you, you do art, paintry, uh, somebody might make moccasins, somebody might be good at, you know, certain kind of fishing with wampum, jewelry making everybody has their own different type of artistic ways if it's singing um if it's cooking yeah poetry poems there's there's so many there's so many everybody has wonderful artistic gifts well i um this is another conversation we'd love to find out more about um about the artists and about the those activities do you do you um have any events that are where you kind of open 
open to non-tribal members or is it? Uh, yes, 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 we do. We have both where the tribe has their own private events or ceremonies and then we have it within a tribal and the community will decide um, if that is open to the public or closed. And then we do have some events or ceremonies that is open um, to non-tribal, to the public, yes. I would love to find out more about that and um, get the word out because yep. I'm myself I'm very interested. In <laughs> yeah, we, we actually try to keep everybody updated on our Facebook public page. Okay. You know, any, anybody could feel free to like it. So we post things up there, not just for our tribe, but for other tribes as well, whether it's in-state or out-of-state, just to keep everybody up to date. And we usually post events and flyers and such on there. Terrific. Thank you. Um, if you're just joining us, this is David Green with the Cultural Alliance of Fairfield County and our October edition of Spotlight on Arts and Culture, our monthly interview show on WPKN 89.5 FM. Today, we're celebrating and exploring Indigenous Peoples Day. Our guests are Darlene Kasak, a member of the Skatikok Nation, storyteller and educator at the Institute for American Indian Studies, Sharan Wapatukwe Piper, clan mother and tribal leader of the Golden Hill Pogusset Tribal Nation. Chelsea Garth, curator at Fairfield Museum and History Center. And Janet Evelyn, executive director of Norwalk Nice and coastal Fairfield County Folk and Traditional Arts Community Impact Coordinator. Now I'd like to bring in Chelsea Garth, the new curator at the Fairfield Museum and History Center. Um, just to say that another native people in our area were the Pequot. They were though virtually wiped out in the very violent Pequot war that was happening in the 1630s along the coast. And that last battle of that war, really a massacre, happened in Southport in 1637. So the Fairfield Museum has been working on a project with the National Park Service to excavate and conduct archeological investigations on the site. So although Pequot culture is not alive today in our immediate area, and I gather that the surviving Pequots were absorbed into the Nashantucket Pequot and the Eastern Pequots, both in Southeastern Connecticut across the Connecticut River, I thought this project was one we should at least reference today, partly as it shows how an institution can present the culture and history of indigenous people to the rest of us today. And I'm very happy that Chelsea can join us to talk about some of the results to date of this project and perhaps some lessons we're learning for uncovering the site. So first, Chelsea, uh, tell us briefly what the project is and why it's being done. Great, yeah, thank you, David. Uh, and thank you to Darlene and Sharan. It's been great to hear your perspectives and your, um, your knowledge of indigenous culture in the area. Um, so as far as our project uh, on the Pequot War over here at Fairfield, um, the Pequot uh, nation was actually based in southeastern Connecticut, so the history of the Pequots in this area was really exclusively surrounding the, um, the Pequot War. 
And so kind of as Sharan was saying, you know, a lot of the place names in this area also reference the Pequot presence from that time period in the 1630s, as you said, David. So, you know, we've got the Pequot Library, um, you know, neighborhoods re referencing street names, referencing the Pequots. So it's, it's very significant to Fairfield's history. And as far as um, this project with the National Park Service, it's um, part of their American Battlefield Protection Program. So uh, this investigation has been surrounding um, a, a battle that took place in, in the Southport area. So where the Pequot War started in the sort of mystic region with the burning of a, a fort in that area. Um, and there was then a retreat subsequently from that area, and they ended up coming this way and through Fairfield and into Southport. So the, uh, the, the battle in Southport in 1637 kind of effectively ended that war. And so th this project was really to kind of investigate um, archaeologically what, what was left over. So we're trying to find, you know, how the English uh, settlers kind of moved through the space, how the Pequot people moved through the space. Um, we were trying to determine if we could figure out how they were interacting with the, the local indigenous people. So the Sasqua and the Ancoa uh, people as well. And um, so it was a, it's a, a really long-term project. It's been going for about 10 years, I believe, if not a little longer. Uh -huh. And um, so we're really kind of in the final stages here. We did a lot of historical research, a lot of archeological research. Um, something interesting that kind of goes with that too is thinking about how the landscape has changed even since then where, you know, um, some of this happened in a swampy marshy kind of area. So um, really there's not much in terms of archeological record there, um, but they, they did find a significant number of artifacts um, in what is now uh, Southport Park. So part of this project has been investigating that area and seeing what they can find. So there's a lot of musket balls, a lot of that kind of thing where we can kind of identify um, where English, uh, English uh, soldiers were kind of in the, the area and what they were doing. And so collaborating that with uh, historical accounts, they can tell, you know, how far apart the, the soldiers were and, you know, what their pace was through the space and that kind of thing. So it's really kind of a way to investigate this kind of history from both the, um, the, the colonist side of things as well as the indigenous side of things. And while it's, it's not always easy, as kind of Darlene was saying, with, you know, investigating things archaeologically, you can only learn so much. So having a sort of um, dual approach is really important. And while sometimes it's difficult in the case of this kind of thing where it's you're, you're limited in kind of resources, especially like oral histories from that time period, we, we do try to see how we can integrate these stories together. And I believe you were working with um, Akamot and Endorna Spears, who was on our program last last month. Um, have you been you've been able to work with indigenous people? So that's part of the, I believe Akamot was part of the sort of planning for this in sort of final stages of interpreting and bringing this information into our museum in terms of our um, history exhibit as well as. Um, doing uh, trail signage in Southport Park, talking about the war. Um, so uh, they're a great organization and um, they're, they're just swamped with work. So they've um, kind of uh, are continuing to do their, their important work, but we're actually working actively right now to 
um, get indigenous voices as part of this conversation as we develop this sort of implementation part of the project and uh, making sure that there's, um, there's insight and, you know, um, personal knowledge and stuff that's being incorporated into this interpretation. So it's not just a, a one-sided conversation from, you know, an archeological and museum sort of studies that's, perspective. Yeah, that's great to hear. Yeah. Um, I, I thought I'd just actually, as we have two organizations, institutions present here, um, just ask you, um, I mean, one specifically indigenous and one a very general history museum mm -hmm. to ask um, all of you, what you see as the role of institutions in keeping alive native history and culture and in relating it to non-native residents of our region? I'd like to answer that. I think it's important that we tell an accurate story. Um, I've worked with Fairfield Museum on some of their education programs, um, and I appreciated them asking for that indigenous point of view. Because, you know, a lot of what I, you know, experienced in school was having others tell our story. And, you know, being a Native child in a classroom, hearing things that you know aren't true, right. um, was very difficult. <laughs> and it, it affected me as an, a student, you know, because if they're lying to me about things that I know, how do I know they're not lying to me about everything they're teaching me, you know? But we have a responsibility as teachers and educators to give them the truth because, you know, what does a native look like? You could have three or four native children in your class and not realize it because we, there are light skinned natives, there are dark skinned natives, you know, there isn't one way that we're supposed to look, but often people have those stereotype, stereotypical images in their mind where they think we all look like a Plains native, you know? that, you know, they have this image. Um, and you know, we're, we're here to bust through all those images. You know, I want them to learn about a Native person from a Native person who doesn't look like Pocahontas, you know? <laughs> right. For them to realize that we're real people. Yeah. Chelsea? Um, yeah, yeah, absolutely. I think, you know, um, the Institute for American Indian Studies is a great institution. I've been there a couple times over the years. And so it's been a pleasure to work with Darlene. Uh, I haven't personally worked with her, but I, I hope I might in the future. Um, but I think it's kind of interesting to think about kind of, you know, the more general history organization like we are here, where um, historically organizations like this have kind of been sort of mediating stories and, and not necessarily in, involving um, those outside voices like indigenous people and telling indigenous history. And I think that's something that really needs to be a corrective in sort of the institutional field and making sure that we're, we're involving the people that we're telling the stories about. Um, and so I think, you know, projects like this are great to sort of develop those relationships and tell those stories and maintain those relationships. Um, and just making sure that we're being accurate, kind of as Darlene said, you know, it's, it's, it's really easy to, um, for, for people to fall into the thinking about stereotypes. And so bringing those forms of knowledge to the fore and kind of making sure that we're telling those stories. And of course, acknowledging that there's different ways of knowing, right? There's, there's oral histories, there's, there's the sciences, there's historical record, and all of these things have value. And we need to recognize that um, they kind of work in context with each other and in concert with each other to tell a, a broader story that brings multiple perspectives together. 
And this seems to be uh, a time in which um, that awareness is growing and more yes. institutions are, are doing that. And um, again, with specific reference to the indigenous people, certainly Akamot from our discussion with Endornis last, uh, last program um, is doing fantastic work. No wonder they're swamped as Absolutely. <laughs> they're giving um, such incredible advice and expertise uh, in this area. Um, one other thing I just wanted to touch on was um, this issue of land acknowledgements. I mean, two, two characteristics of indigenous cultures um, that certainly I'm aware of, and as Darlene referred to, are time, that sort of deep connection to the stream of time, the sort of the um, awareness both of ancestors and the future um, in everything that um, indigenous people do. And the other is that relationship to the land, both quite different from mainstream contemporary culture. Um, and these both do seem to come together in this <coughs> recent growing practice of land acknowledgements. I mean, increasingly many very well-meaning organizations have been giving acknowledgements bef before public events. I mean, I guess the idea is to make an audience conscious of who occupied the land we're currently inhabiting. But I'm gathering they're proving a little controversial. Um, do you have some thoughts about this, Darlene? Yes, we're often contacted um, about helping someone write their land acknowledgement. Um, they wanna know the original inhabitants of the land, which is tricky, which is very tricky. Um, so we do our best there. But what I find in, when I'm coaching someone on how to write one, the purpose of a land acknowledgement is supposed to be a healing statement. Uh -huh. And quite often, you know, people will send me their first draft and it comes across as a scolding statement. And I think they're missing the point of the statement. I often say that we all get here to this exact day in history through these steps of our ancestors. Some ancestors like mine were here since time immortal. Others came here from, you know, far away, escaping horrible conditions somewhere to start a new life in this new land. And then others were brought here against their will to be used as slaves. We need to recognize those different stories, uh -huh. acknowledge that they exist. Mm -hmm. um, if we're ever going to heal and bring us all and unite us together as a country again. So I think the, Land acknowledgement can be the first step in that if it's written properly, you know, if it's acknowledging the original inhabitants of the land in a respectful and honorable way, um, you know, we're, we're bringing attention to the fact that, you know, your town, your county didn't begin with colonization, that there were people living here you know, thousands and thousands of years before. And for people to understand that and realize that, um, and that, you know, we're not gone. All those last, of, you know, right. things that you hear, you know, last of the Mohegans. I know a lot of Mohegans. They're still, <laughs> you know, um, and, you know, I've seen it over and over again, looking at old newspaper articles, last of the, the Golden Hill Bogusset. I, I saw one um, and I'm thinking, wow, you know, <laughs> must have been really mad at that you know <laughs> um so you know there's supposed to be a healing statement you know um and if people 
you know, reach out and ask for help if they're not sure. You know, I think that's better than them, you know, putting something out there that's that's scolding. Because when you, you're scolding and you're yelling and hollering, people stop listening. You want this to be healing. So you want them to be open to accept this information. Very good. And um, you invite organizations to contact you about that? It could be overwhelming, but yes, <laughs> you know, we will try to get their answers to them as quickly as possible. Um, it's, you know, a little tricky trying to pinpoint the exact people that were on a specific spot because through research, there's many different opinions. Uh -huh. One will tell you it was this tribe. And then as soon as you post that, another person comes along and says, no, that wasn't right. Even the same person contradicts themselves, we're finding. Um, so, you know, we, we try to do it as accurately and respectfully as we can. And as you said, it's the attitude that's uh, perhaps most important. Um, right. To, to promote uh, healing and understanding. Um, well, thank you. Um, so moving on, um, I thought this was actually a very appropriate occasion to introduce our new folk and traditional arts community impact coordinator, Janet Evelyn. Um, this is a half year temporary position, something of an experiment funded by the Connecticut Office of the Arts and to enable us that the Cultural Alliance of Fairfield County to work with the Connecticut Cultural Heritage Arts Program, which is the state's folk and traditional arts initiative part of the Connecticut Historical Society based in Hartford. So the goal is to reach out and connect with folk and traditional artists and communities uh, across the 15 towns of our region of coastal uh, uh, Fairfield County and link them to the Cultural Heritage Arts Program and look for opportunities to strength, strengthen what we hope is an increasingly more inclusive network of Connecticut cultural heritage. So welcome, Janet. Um, and first, please tell us a little bit about yourself and um, what you've been doing recently and what attracted you to apply for this position. Thank you, David. Yes, so um, I'm Janet Evelyn, as he mentioned, and um, currently work um, as the executive director for the Norwalk International Cultural Exchange. It's a uh, fairly new nonprofit organization that we started here in Norwalk to celebrate our global heritage and to uh, increase the awareness of the diversity of peoples from around the world through arts and culture. Specifically, we, um, uh, we focus on uh, celebrating traditional art forms and uh, folk and traditional art forms across uh, many different cultures, you know, as many as we can get our, our hands on. So um, what has attracted me to this position is that NICE in itself, the work that I currently do in this nonprofit that I founded, um, is uh, is is in that is in that sphere sphere. You know, we are connecting. We really seek out to 
identify and work with uh, traditional uh, folk performers, uh, traditional groups who are the um, who are the the artists and bearers of uh, of uh, shedding light on traditional folk traditional folklore, traditional cultures, and the art forms that these cultures these cultures um, um, preserve and um, help to continue their, you know, help to 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 uh, to preserve their stories and cultures and art forms, whether it's um, music, whether it's food, whether it's dance, whether it's crafts, you know, making uh, moccasins and things like that. So, um, uh, so Janet, how, what do you see, uh, how do you see yourself operating um, and what will you be doing in this new position? So, um, so exactly. So um, I'd be, you know, shedding more light, um, seeking to shed more light on the many artists and groups that are the bearers um, of uh, traditional art forms, that are the bearers of traditional stories. And we'll be looking to, um, you know, connect with these individuals and these groups and um, help them to, to uh, uh, be, learn more about the resources that uh, CHAP, the Connecticut Historical Society Art Program offers uh, for, uh, tra in, for traditional artists, um, along with other programs that exist in the Connecticut Office of the Arts and uh, programs, as, as uh, you had mentioned, uh, David, with uh, Shona, uh, being aware of, for example, these open to the public events that um, um, events that uh, they oft offer to 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 the uh, to the community. So, bringing more awareness about those programs and and learning more about these groups. That's great. Um, you know, I'm so sorry that we're running out of time. Um, it's been a fascinating program. Um, Janet, people can reach you. Could you give us uh, your email address for people who wanted to contact you? So, um, so uh, you can reach out to me at Janet at NorwalkNice.org. Janet, Janet at NorwalkNice.org. Right. .org. Janet at NorwalkNice.org. And again, um, it was excellent. I'll, I'll definitely want to be to connect with people like Darlene and um, and Sharon, the clan mother, and, and everyone here on the program to uh, uh, find out more about the various groups and artists uh, and individuals that are out there uh, that are the bearers of traditional art and traditional art forms. Great, and we're very excited about working with you, Janet. Well, I've learned a tremendous amount during this time. I'm sorry, we only have an hour. Um, and I hope our listeners have learned a lot and will uh, take this opportunity of this one day to do more uh, exploration of the native and indigenous culture that is alive today in, in many forms. So thank you everyone for participating today. and. Um, I look forward to meeting you all. This has been David Green with the Cultural Alliance of Fairfield County. You have been listening to our October 2021 edition 
of Spotlight on Arts and Culture, a monthly interview show on WPKN 89.5 FM. Today, our subject was Indigenous Peoples Day. Our guests were Darlene Katak, member of the Skatikok Story uh, Nation, storyteller and educator at the Institute for American Indian Studies, Sharan Wapatukwe Piper, clan mother and tribal leader of the Golden Hill Pogasset Tribal Nation, Chelsea Garth, curator at Fairfield Museum and History Center, and Janet Evelyn, executive director of Norwalk Nice and Coastal Fairfield County Folk and Traditional Arts Community Impact Coordinator. If you missed part of the broadcast or just want to hear it again, you can hear the show on WPKN Podcasts on SoundCloud. I'm David Green with the Cultural Alliance of Fairfield County. Please tune in on Monday, November the 8th for the next edition of Spotlight on Arts and Culture.